All right, and welcome to the Church History Road Trip. My name is Rick Kleinard, and I am joined here, as always, with my historical partner in crime, Greg Moore. Greg, I see that you are, once again, in the back of your family minivan. Yes, uh, this episode brought to you by Chrysler Town and Country. Um, so we could get a sponsorship; would be great. I, I have several sponsorships just ready to go. I don't think they're paying us any money, but um, Chrysler is definitely one that's been good to us. Um, when I shopped for this van, I had looked at the touring model. I went with the podcast model instead. Right? Yeah, comes with mics in the back and stuff. That's awesome. Did you did you ask for that? Did you were you the guy? Because when I buy a couch, I take a nap, like I act, like I lay on it. <laughs> Did you go back? The first in, episode, I, re, I say, excuse me, do you mind if I record in the back right. of this for about 30 minutes? Yeah, the dealer's back there going, that's going to be part of, the, part of the contract. All right, so what is going on in your life? You just celebrated this week a bit, a kind of a milestone. You, it was, I saw it on social media. And for those of you who are listeners who don't follow Greg on social media, join everybody else. Because, Greg, you have about how many <laughs> followers? <laughs> no, Greg, I think you have more followers than I do. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I, it was my work anniversary um, at, at my uh, my university. I've been I've only been there a year, so yeah, we were working together for several years before that, sharing an office. So it's it's kind of like my a year since we got divorced, right? Speaking since since so. you left, and if I'm not mistaken, I did all the work getting your boxes or your books out of that office. I don't remember you doing really. Much. I did I did quite a bit, although you did a lot as well. Okay. But all right. also very handy that day when we were moving all my books out. This is uh, Chrysler Town and Country. Absolutely. Once again, Chrysler Town and Country, uh, yeah. the official the official minivan so of my, the I Church guess, History Road Trip. I guess my big, at least on a one-to-one type of news level that I wanted to mention to you was several times in this podcast, you've mentioned Led Zeppelin. All right. And, okay. um, and I will be the first to say I knew – like if you said name a Led Zeppelin song, I would have nothing in my head. Not even Stairway. Um, well, I, I'm f- very familiar with that song. I just didn't realize it was them. I thought it was one of their their friends back in the 70s. Uh, but So I, I spent uh, the last, I'd say week and a half going through um, just while I'm working and stuff, I'll have, I'll have some uh, Led Zeppelin on in the background just to get more familiar with your, with, with your musics. Well, I appreciate that. So you've been going through the back catalog of, of Zeppelin. So let me ask this quick question. Mm-hmm. What has, which song um, or album has stuck out to you? That's like automatically know. you liked it. I don't know. Uh, they, I, 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 basically I have a, I have a thing on Spotify where it just mixes all of them together, which maybe is not the best way to listen to them, but right. I will say it is a weird mix. Like genre wise, they, I mean, yeah, it's rock, but it's it, I, it, like I'll listen to one song and the next song comes up. I'm like, is this the same band? Um, but the other song that I'm familiar with is that song that they did on the Thor movie. Ah, the immigrant song. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. If, if you said, here's a song called the immigrant song, that's not what I would have pictured. I would have pictured some type of slow cello piece, but um uh yeah it's quite the opposite yeah it's interesting it's interesting group yeah well i'm so glad that we're able to broaden your musical horizons due to the church history uh, road trip and that's what we kind of want to do in this episode um is is broaden a few horizons uh because today you wanted to speak on you had mentioned about let's discuss 
fundamentalism. And when I said that word just now, probably some of our listeners, probably a couple different responses. Some leaned in a little closer and thought, what are these two guys going to say that's going to get them into a lot of trouble? Um, Or they had no idea what we were talking about. Or there were some who had an idea of what we were talking about. All they know about fundamentalism is they're not supposed to wear jeans and they have to have a really big King James leather-bound Schofield study Bible. That's so, right. So I pretty much think that covers our gambit. So, uh, so let's chat up a little bit and talk about the fundamentalism or fundamentalists. And the, it ultimately begins with the, the publication of that series of pamphlets known as the fundamentals. But, I think we need to let our listeners know about the historical context of, of those pamphlets. Those are very important. Anytime, like we, we talk about this on, a, on another podcast that I, uh, I frequent, uh, The Bible Guys, where we talk about the context of a passage. We need to talk about the context of the history. So let's chat a little bit about the context uh, or the historical context of those pamphlets, the fundamentals. Okay. I don't want to go into the too deep because like if i'm giving a you know if i'm teaching a course on this (laughs) this part will take multiple multiple sessions but so basically the idea was we're talking late 19 uh 19th century early 20th century where you have this strain between um what the fundamentalists would consider orthodox theology and modernism yeah liberalism yeah yeah, places like princeton are going to be a hotbed of this yeah. modernist theology. And a key part of that, if you're just going to boil it down in a simplistic way, is denial of miracles. Um, you look around us, and we don't see people rising from the dead. We don't see people being you know, healed miraculously and things like that. So therefore, when it says that in the Bible, it doesn't really mean that. It, it's either you know, ex- exaggeration or if there's a deeper more, if you want to call it allegorical type of meaning, uh, some will go that direction. Yeah. And uh, really this, this all kind of really came to a head in, in 1910. um, We, they had, we had the publication of this, um, these ideas, these, what they would call these essential doctrines that would really line you, whether you were in or out uh, that these things had to be so. And if they weren't so, then you couldn't even call yourself, you shouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, and we got a list. There were really five of them. Um, so we have the inerrancy of Scripture, which was the key. Uh, you've got writers such as B.B. Warfield um, writing on, on this. You have... And I, I will say on that, on that mark, this is where you start seeing churches and institutions saying, um, yeah, of course we believe in inspiration of Scripture. But then when you actually say, well, what does that mean? They're like, well, and and they'll they'll skirt the issue. So what you end up seeing, especially for these, what will be fundamentalist institutions, fundamentalist churches, they'll start saying things like, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, right. every word, the whole thing, basically to to clarify their position. Yeah, and and then when um when Charles Briggs, uh, when he he assumed the presidency of Union. Um, this is something he denied later on. The biblical and he actually denied biblical inerrancy. So you kind of you start seeing the separation as you mentioned earlier in the different universities. Um, so then you have so you have the uh, insp- inerrancy of Scripture. You have the virgin birth of Christ, his substitutionary atonement. Uh, again, not that they believe that Christ didn't 
die, but was it an atoning sacrifice? Did he die in our place? Then you have the resurrection of Christ and the authenticity of miracles, as you said earlier. So the, anything in there, everything in there is supernatural. So the supernatural world became something that was, uh, I would use the word taboo uh, with, with more modern liberal scholars. And ultimately, and well, not ultimately, I should say, uh, a lot of this is coming from the German universities, uh, yet Tübingen. And, um, and when you look at the historical context, which I thought was, I kind of thought was interesting when I was doing some research on this, um, part of the pushback against liberal theology, besides the fact that, you know, it went against what was seen as the clear teaching of scripture was that it was an export from Germany and we are not far away removed from the great war and German equals bad was a lot of things seen um, in the, in the climate. So uh, couple that with the things that were being taught, things were being said from, from pulpits. Uh, you had this series of pamphlets called the fundamentals and they're written by both American and British scholars. And, and while I, I believe, I don't know if we have the name specifically, but I know that a wealthy businessman paid for the printing. Do Greg, do you happen to remember who that was? Um, I do not remember offhand. Yeah. I, I don't know if he actually, if he was actually known um, out there. I can make um, up a name. Would you like me to make? Yeah, up? let's do that. He anyway. Heinrich von Spielenheiner. Went with the German name, even though we just, okay, talked yeah. about that. All right. I know so. it was quite a paradox, really. So then what we have from there is just American Protestantism uh, really polarizing between the two liberal and conservative camps. And those fundamentalists were the ones on on the uh the you know, the more i guess you said the i'm mean, use the word right as in a sense of a direction the right side you have the the left more liberal leaning and you have the the fundamentalists on the on the right leaning side right um one thing i wanted to bring in here was the um you mentioned the doctrinal part of fundamentalism because fundamentalism basically is just a reaction to mm -hmm. all that stuff that they see going along there and you had um within a fairly short amount of time the major denominations uh, like the North, Northern Presbyterians and the Northern Baptists, um, all of a sudden their institutions are what we would consider modernistic or theologically liberal, and uh, their churches slowly be, become that way as well. And so fundamentalism is a reaction to that, and you mentioned the, the publications that went along with that, that kind of at least coined the term, even though um, the movement probably began before that. But uh, George Dollar, um, he wrote History of Fundamentalism, Fundamentalism in America. And I wanted to just read uh, this this brief uh, definition of fundamentalism because it, it's two points, right? It's a doctrinal, but it's also something else. He says, fundamentalism is the literal exposition of all the affirmations and attitudes of the Bible, but it's also the militant exposure of all non-biblical affirmations and attitudes. So here's what we espouse, but you guys over there don't espouse this and this and this, and we're going to call you out for it. And so it, it's, it's an attitude, but it's also a doctrinal position. And so that it's kind of interesting. I would say in modern, you know, within our lifetime mm -hmm. in our circles, at least, um, which are, I would say fairly conservative Baptist circles. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a huge change in, in people that want to identify as fundamentalist. Um, and I don't know, I have no idea where you are on that particular label, but we have things like 
Islamic extremists and things like that are that are often called fundamentalists. And so after 9-11, you really see even like Bob Jones pulling away um, from that term. Um, I would not particularly call myself a fundamentalist. Um, and what's really interesting is I taught Baptist history for a number of years. And before that, I was in a number of Baptist history courses. And I would say around the year 2001, 2002, you said, how many of you folks would consider yourselves fundamentalist? I'd say four-fifths, if not all, early on. And then uh, when I started teaching, I would say about half. The last time I, I taught that course, I would say nobody would consider themselves a fundamentalist. And it's because of a lot more modern issues, or more contemporary issues, I should say, um, where that term fundamentalist has kind of been side-railed into, here's all these tertiary issues that we're going to kind of focus on. You mentioned, I mean, you jokingly mentioned things like wearing the pants and translations. And a lot of times, the fundamentalists I know that would still call themselves that, that's kind of where they are. That um, If they saw me walk in to their auditorium to speak at their church and I was wearing jeans, suddenly I'm outside the will of God somehow. If I got up there and preached something that might have been doctrinally off, but I looked okay, a lot of times they're perfectly fine with that. Yeah, and can I speak on that a little bit? Because I grew up in, in a church that would classify itself as fundamentalist, and they wore the badge proudly. Mm-hmm. And um, and I wasn't a believer in Christ at the time. And I'm, I I joked around just today with my wife because we were talking about this topic in preparation for the podcast. And I said, it is a testimony to the God's grace that, that I'm a Christian because I grew up in that. That was the community. That was it. And that's what I thought Christianity was. Even to the point when I became a believer in Christ, I started going that route. I said, okay, well, this is how it has to be because this is what I was always taught. And then when I started studying the Bible for myself, and especially in the, other, in the original languages like Hebrew and Greek, I started realizing, man, that text doesn't say what they say it said. And so I had a lot of times I could point to messages that I heard in, these fundamental, in this fundamental Baptist church that was not doctrinally accurate, that was void of the gospel, but it was accepted because of the number one, the guy, the way the guy was dressed and his tone, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so let's just do this right now. So even now I have, I recoil against some things that are, um, I guess I would say fundamental Baptist, you know, fit. Yes. Uh, so I, I recoil against, I'm not a tie fan. Uh, I just don't. Matter of fact, if I'm going to wear a tie, I, I follow the principle of no ties or no ties or bow ties, just to do just to be something a little different. Um, I think I might have been accepted at that church, but they might have seen me as liberal. Um, but even to the point of so when I'm if I'm in a service and a pastor says, "Can I get an amen?" I just I just want to say no. You don't give you know? it to them. No, because my <laughs> view is my view is if you have to ask for an amen, you don't deserve it. I mean, that's, yeah, I that's don't, like, I don't do it's that like either. asking my wife for a compliment, honey, how do I, don't I look good in this? And she's like, no, you need to get on the treadmill. And, and so all that being said, those are some things I kind of recall against cause that's what I grew up in. Right. And that's my own, that's just me working through my own issues there. But, but it, it, there are a generation of people that were not, I, w- I would say the, they didn't experience that, or I guess I should say they, they didn't come around. Mm-hmm. So they, when they graduated, um, they left high school or they went off to college. They kind of just stuck their nose up to the whole thing. And that's Christianity as a whole. So they said, 
all right, here's what fundamentalism is. Fundamentalism equals Christianity. So I'm done. And they, and, and I, I just hate it. I hate it for my brothers and sisters who, yeah. who went that route. Yeah. I, I think I would have a lot more in common with the early fundamentalist. Oh yeah. Cause it's, it's interesting what they, what they don't see as issues, at least mm-hmm. fundamental against fundamental issues. Yeah. Um, even things that we a lot of times associate with fundamentalists like yeah. eschatology. Yeah. No um, rapture discussion at all. Yeah. You had, you had Presbyterians and you had Baptists that that's mostly who it was mm-hmm. that were united basically in the gospel and said, we can get behind this. And when you had other groups, like for example, the right after World War One, there was a big modernist group that, that led a basically a big social gospel movement. Mm-hmm. They're like, you know what? We, we just can't get involved with that. It's great. You want to help out Europe, but don't call it, don't call it missions because what you're giving, what you're saying, you're giving us the gospel isn't the gospel. And so that's, to me, that is a fundamental difference. And so it is interesting there that you move to today's world where I would say fundamentalism has been on decline for quite a while, but the fundamentalists that are still around, they're going to be drawing lines, um, a lot more than what we're drawing there in the, in the early 1900s. Yeah, I would agree. I think I would have aligned myself. If I was a believer at that time, I would have more likely aligned myself there with the movement just, just because of, of where it stood. But again, I, I was talking to somebody about this too, who grew up, who was in the fundamentalist movement. You know, they're, they're older and they, they saw it change and their, their take on it was um, we, our first battle was with the, with, with modernism, with liberalism. And, you know, the, the fundamentalists char- charge these liberals with denying the authority of the Bible and the, and the um, veracity of miracles. But then the liberals charge the fundamentalists with being anti-intellectual. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff, and just like what we're seeing today in our world, you know, between things, if, you know, it's, just, it's just going around. Um, but he said that, but what happened was when, What's funny was liberalism thought fundamentalism would just die out. But what happened was the opposite. Liberalism didn't just, it didn't so much die out. It still exists, but it, it's strength died out. If you'd say that. So the, so the statement was made, he said, you know, after the, after we beat the liberals, we didn't have anybody else to fight. So we turned on each other. And so we started dividing lines between each other and to see who's really truly a fundamentalist. And so that's when it, he said that that's when it really went downhill and, he would say, I don't use that term anymore for himself. And, and I'm with you. It's it, when it became fighting each other, when it became who's in, who's out. Um, when, when sermons from fundamentalist pulpits became more about here's why our church or, or group of churches is doing the right thing. And the other ones aren't, um, that's when it, it really lost its way. Um, yeah. And I will say throughout fundamentalist history, which again, it's not that long. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there are, there's a lot of weird characters. Oh yeah. That we could have had a whole are, episode just in videos of showing, <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you have folks like, um, was it Jake Frank Norris who sh- shot a guy and he was for a uh, pastor of, uh, first Baptist Dallas. Okay. So and first Baptist every, of Detroit, every student, when we were colleagues, every student who said they took your church history class or Baptist history class, they always remember that guy. They said, because you enjoy talking about J. Frank Norris. So 
can you please for, I mean, I know we're on a podcast, but if anybody's listening, they've turned us off already. Will you go ahead and give us a little bit of J Frank Norris? What happened with that guy? Sure. So he, he was a very controversial pastor, pastor of a um, very large first Baptist church. Uh, I think I said Dallas, but it was in Fort Worth. Um, he was at odds with SBC leaders down there at the same time that he's pastoring that church. He starts pastoring, I think it's First Baptist in Detroit, which think about it. This is like early 1900s. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, he's traveling quite a bit yeah. there to do that. Um, but again, every, basically everywhere he goes, he just is a very harsh individual in that very critical of any type of leadership over him to the point where he makes his own school. He makes his own little, um, I guess, fellowship of churches and stuff like that. Eventually, even the school, I think, kicks him out. Uh, like, I mean, he's just, he's just an abrasive guy, but mm-hmm. um, he is known for several things. One, he, down in Fort Worth, he is a guy that had several arson charges. They think he tried to burn down his church for insurance money, which I think all of us have done at some point. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. So, but he's most known probably for shooting a guy in his office it was a basically he'd been making fun of the mayor uh in his sermons you know because again that's a good use of your pulpit time right and so this guy was a apparently a friend of the mayor he comes there kind of barges into the, the pastor's office and so he shoots him kills him and um was acquitted for that and also for the arson stuff but i mean he, my favorite story that i don't think you'll find this in, in any of the, the history books on this but i um, so where'd you, you just make, you're making it up. No, <laughs> no, I, he, this was a, from a very old Baptist historian that I talked, okay. that I talked to who I think was around during this time, but Wait, so know, are, South, we, are we allowed to share this? Is this, uh, yeah, will, will we be sued for libel on this one? No, everyone's dead involved with it. Oh, okay. Stuff. So we're good. Yeah. That's good. Um, so down in Fort Worth, there's also a Southern Baptist seminary, Southwestern. Mm-hmm. And so J. Frank Norris on Christmas, I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or Christmas, but it doesn't really matter. I think it was Christmas Eve night. Uh, him and some of his deacons would get these bags of rotten fruit and deliver them to the professors at Southwestern. It's that terrible. That, it's like <laughs> the worst Santa horrible. trip ever. <laughs> uh, I mean, wow. But that's the type of stuff you get wrapped in if if you just think it's all about me and we're yeah. going to, like you said, we're going to divide on every little thing. Yeah. Um, my goodness. I, I find him interesting Yeah. just because of, he is the exact opposite of what I would want in a pastor or in my own conduct. I would, I would, I can't imagine being that vindictive. I'm mm-hmm. too apathetic to be that vindictive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not that I, don't feel bad that you don't like me. I just don't care enough to travel <laughs> with bags care. of rotten fruit to deliver to from professors. That's, I don't know. It's, we, we're, we're a little more civilized in our culture today. We'll just tweet about them. Yeah. Have the decency <laughs> to speak behind their back. Right. Um, so, so uh, a little bit further on, I want to go a little bit further with this with, with some fundamentalism discussion, because, you know, like I said earlier, um, a lot of the liberal theology came from Tobigan and Germany equals bad, according to, you know, when it was right there, the middle, you know, right for the war. Um, but then you had a new threat start um, 
after World War II, and that's communism. Mm -hmm. And so then you see if a little interesting nugget in, in fundamentalism history is, is the communism as the, ex, is the new external threat from the outside. It's coming. And we've got to brace ourselves against that. So you started seeing, um, you know, I, I remember sermons um, with, with a very, I'm going to use the phrase, it was almost with a very patriotic slant to it. Um, and so uh, because of the, on the outside, communism, Red Scare, all that on the outside. But then you had an internal threat, which, which, which you saw was public education system. The public education system was seen as liberal-leaning, specifically in its desire um, by some to teach uh, evolution. So you had the southern states that banded together to make evolution illegal, couldn't teach it. And so that opens up the, the door for the, the Scopes trial. And uh, for our listeners, background on the Scopes trial, um, what we have is a, is, a, is a teacher, Scopes, who was charged with teaching evolution. As a matter of fact, though, the, the fun fact about this was it actually wasn't true. He just said he had done it, but he actually had not ever taught uh, evolution in the school. Um, but he was willing to be the defendant. And, you know, you have Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan as the, the, the two attorneys Clarence Darrow for Scopes and Brian for um, the, the state. And even though uh, Darrow, or sorry, even though Scopes lost, that trial itself was, was kind of a, a black eye in, in, or I guess you'd say that in the, la, in the fundamentalism, or maybe like one of the last nails in the popular opinion of fundamentalism. Um, again, it was seen as unintelligent, um, mainly because um, when put on the witness stand, William James Bryan was asked, where did Cain get his wife? And he had no answer. Um, so it was seen as, okay, but so seriously, like in the history of philosophy and theology, right? that is to me, I mean, I think that's a softball question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's beside the point. No, go ahead, man. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't I mean, watch a lot of baseball James like Bryan. you, but yeah. I, this is one of those parts where I'm like, I mean, that, that was an easy pitch. You should have knocked that one out of the park, buddy. Well, you know, and, and I can see why I could see the hesitancy with saying it was his sister um, because then it would also, yeah, you know, because yeah. the, the modernist ans response to that is going to be, oh, so your religion has affords for this kind of stuff. And, oh, no, that's not what it is. Um, yet you'd have to get into, and we'd have to open up some Ken Ham books to get to all that. To <laughs> Um, but I don't think we're the, there yet. No, but, but in saying he didn't know again, it was just one of those no win. Yeah. It was the old, uh, what's it? The Koba, Kobayashi Maru question. And he, That's they right. really, it was a brilliant question to ask for the, for, um, for Darrow because he would, no matter what he asked, he had a move. He was playing chess. Yeah. He knew what to go with to make fundamentalism look unintelligent. Yeah. Um, uh, the last one of the things I wanted to bring up in this discussion of fundamentalism is a contemporary, I guess, more of a contemporary issue. Um, I have a number of people in my, I guess, acquaintance circle that would be considered um, ex-fundamental, but also probably 
they consider themselves ex-evangelical, the former evangelical people. Yeah. And um, just so everyone's clear here, fundamentalism is a part of evangelicalism. So if you're a fundamentalist, even even if you're listening to me, fundamentalist, and you don't want to be considered evangelical, you are. <laughs> but but not all evangelicals are fundamentalists. Okay. Um, but I, I guess various I guess various abuses have driven some people driven some people out of that, and I, I can understand that. But you also have kind of what we were saying. You have people that are making these hills to die on that that they've kind of created themselves with Bible translations, with these other issues that are out there. Even I would say music to some extent. Some people can get um, it's just zoned in on that and some of their own preferences. Um, yeah, I think so any I, fundamentalists who are listening to us probably stopped when you started talking about Zeppelin. <laughs> I don't know. I've known some that, that, have, that are really into that. So, um, so I, I don't know. I, I would say for, for those that have been driven out of evangelicalism and are looking for another place, maybe in main, mainline Protestantism, I will say this about evangelicalism today. I, I, there are some excellent churches that are out there just because you were harmed in one or you have someone that was just a real jerk of a leader, you know, not a good shepherd. There are good shepherds out there. Yeah. And, um, and so I guess my, my encouragement would be to, to, to keep looking maybe within that, within that realm. And I'm glad you brought that up because we never want to end this podcast just bashing, even though we, you know, you got to own it. The, the history of fundamentalism, I'm going to say recent history over the last maybe 60, 70 years has been, been dark. Um, but we, there's hope. I want to use that phrase. So I'm, I'm just going to, like I told my story that I'm a, I came out of that. Um, for me, there are two books that I can point to right now that, that really helped. And again, a lot of people, uh, books, I mean, yeah, these two books really helped. And um, they were they were meant to be companion books. The first, they were both written by um, Stephen Arterburn. He's very well known for the Every Man Battle series of books um, put out by Waterbrook. I believe that's the publisher. But um, these two books, first one is called Toxic Faith, and it's about the whole tagline is is when when leadership uses um, religion to poison. So it's like toxic faith. And he gives examples. Um, and a lot of them are from fundamentalist, um, minded style churches and how they've been abused by, uh, maybe not as, maybe not abused by a leader as we would normally think of abuse, um, in physical or, or sexual, but more of a, the people have abused their power and it just turned them off to who Jesus was. And so that book, Toxic Faith, that leads into its um, its companion, and which I actually read first. And the book was called More, More Jesus, Less Religion. And the whole premise is he said a toxic faith was – his first book was a toxic faith. His second book is called is, – is More Jesus, Less Religion. And he says this is about a healthy faith. So every chapter starts with a healthy faith does this. Uh, where a toxic faith does this, a healthy faith does this. So if you only pick up one of those books – I would advise you to pick up more Jesus, less religion. It was one of those books that, man, I read it at the right time and it helped heal some of those wounds that I didn't realize I still had. Uh, the idea that, man, I, 
I can't carry a leather black Bible anymore. I can't do it, you know, but I've gotten past it. Um, but it really does help. And um, I think those two books are, re are resources I think are great for anybody who's listening who, as you said, still looking. Um, and, and the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ is, is more beautiful than what is being peddled in these kind of churches. I have just a couple of uh, resources that I wanted to mention. Um, one I kind of alluded to earlier, which is George Dollar's A History of Fundamentalism in America. If you've just got like a couple of years to spend and you just want to read about fundamentalism for a while and uh, get some good naps in there. <laughs> no, it's, it's a classic, but it is big. Um, but his that's a pretty good work. The other one is um, read some stuff by... Uh, Jay Gresham Mason, mm -hmm. who's a, a, a Presbyterian during this time. His yeah. group is the one that kind of split off from the modernistic Presbyterians yeah. and formed uh, Westminster uh, Seminary, yeah. which I think very highly of. Um, but man, his his work on Christianity and, and liberalism and 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 that that's that's really is the kind of the core of what they were struggling with back then. And I realize both of those are um, a bit more. Um, um, historic than the ones you mentioned. So hopefully that's a good balance for the listeners. Well, I'm going to throw another history book in, if I may. Um, and it's a book by, um, it's from Fortress Press. It's the Fortress Introduction to the History of Christianity in the United States. Okay. And that's by Nancy Coaster. That's K-O-E-S-T-E-R. Hope I'm Nancy, if you're listening. I'm, I'm familiar with her, uh, with her products. Right. She is the heiress to the Coaster fa uh, fortune. Yes. Big fan. No, not at all. Um, but yes. Um, but it's a good work. Um, it gives it, it right now as we're reading through it, it's given good history, which I like. It doesn't have too much of a slant. A lot of times you read these history books and there's a slant. And um, this one is just giving me facts so far. And I, I really enjoy it. it. it I, a, I will say this as a, someone that's read a lot of the uh, books around fundamentalism and modernism. I tell you what, I don't know of any other part of theological history and I, I know that there are other bits that are probably as slanted as this but you're talking about slants it's hard it's really hard to get to get a a good work from this it's not coming from a we are fundamentalist everyone else is evil or from the modernist side we're modernists what the heck is wrong with y'all uh I mean, it, it's it's usually one of those two camps and so it's, right. it is hard to get a, a balanced view there yeah so those are some resources we'll put, put in your hands, uh, listeners. We're hoping that this podcast is beneficial. Uh, again, as always, if you want to email us, maybe questions you'd like to, for us to cover in future episodes, you can email us at churchhistoryroadtrip at gmail.com. You can also uh, like or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platforms or follow us on Twitter uh, uh, at, at Church History Road Trip. As always, I'm Rick Clonard. Greg, it's been good to have you today. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Rick. Yep. Yeah.